This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear The Frog Prince by Robert Coover, which was published in The New Yorker in January of 2014. The prince was adorable. All the girls at the bridge club, squirming with envy, said so though you could still see the effects his previous residence had had on him. He had heavy-lidded eyes and a wide mouth like a hand puppet's. The story was chosen by Gabe Hudson, whose first book of fiction, Dear Mr. President, came out in 2002 and received the Sue Kaufman Prize for First Fiction from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. A new novel, Gork, the Teenage Dragon, will be published this month. Hi, Gabe. Hey, Deborah. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled, sincerely. Now, you chose a story by Robert Coover, and his work has been especially important to you because you studied with him, right? That's right. Was Uh, that as an undergrad or grad student? uh, As a graduate student um, in the MFA program at Brown University. Being at that program was a sort of life-changing event for me, and then working with uh, Robert Coover or Bob as we call him, uh, was also a hugely transformative experience. Had you read him before you took the class? Um, I'm trying to figure out if I lied back then. I want to catch myself. If I had told him, I hadn't read him as an undergrad. (laughs) And when I got to Brown, I heard everybody's just talking about Robert Coover. And um, even to get in his class, there would be these melees, like just students swarming his first day of class. So... I had to find a way to kind of charm myself into his class, which I did. What was the reason that people would storm the classes and try to get in? Was it, was it seen as the sort of master class in fiction writing? I think absolutely. Um, he's famous. Uh, he has a tremendous presence on campus. I don't know if he does anymore. I think he might not be teaching as much. But uh, he would always hold these festivals and... Coover had his hand in everything kind of cool and interesting at Brown. Mm-hmm. What was it in his work that drew you in? Um, I think a kind of uh, reverence for all different forms of storytelling. It seemed as if he could uh, take a comic book or he might, you know, he wrote Pinocchio in Venice. He is just pulling from the culture and then rewriting, and he's tremendously funny, and he's a great writer. I mean, his sentences are beautiful. Uh, For me, what was compelling is that he also has a sort of strong um, moral undercurrent to his work, which some folks might miss. Mm -hmm. Now, the story that that you picked today is uh, The Frog Prince, which is sort of drawn from a fairy tale, and fairy tales are known for having morals. Do you think that's do you think that's why the fairy tale motif is important to him? Um, the truth is, when it comes to Coover, I think uh, what, and I consider myself someone who has been very close to him at different times, uh, what he says about what he's up to in his work um, might actually be different. Um, I think If I had to guess, he would suggest that he's trying to take an existing narrative and sort of deconstruct it and show it um, for the fact that maybe 
it's not what it appears to be. But I see in his work a kind of reverence for these things and a kind of joy and engaging with them. And uh, I think there's sort of great humanity and, and Coover's gesture of, at this late date in history, grabbing one of those texts and sort of um, infusing it with new life. Yeah. Do you think that the Frog Prince is, is would you say it's sort of typical of the kind of writing he does? Um, well, the great thing about Coover is there really is <laughs> no, no typical. typical. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, I can't think of anyone like him. Um, but I do think that this is emblematic of the kind of thing he does. Um, when I was at Brown, he would constantly be giving readings. And I remember just wandering in one time to a building. He's giving a reading to like 80 people. And it was about the invisible man. And he just everybody was spellbound and laughing. And then the tale turns quite sad at the end. And it's like Coover's voice you could just find it at different places on campus doing that to people all the time. It was really, you know, kind of a magic uh, presence. So. Well, great. We'll talk some more after the story. Now here's Gabe Hudson reading The Frog Prince by Robert Coover. The Frog Prince. At first it was great. Sure. It always is. She cuddled a frog, wishing for more, and presto, a handsome prince who doted on her. It meant the end of her marriage, of course, but her ex was something of a toad himself who had a nasty habit of talking with his mouth full and a tongue good for nothing but licking stamps. The prince was adorable. All the girls at the bridge club squirming with envy said so, though you could still see the effects his previous residence had had on him. He had heavy-lidded eyes and a wide mouth like a hand puppet's. His complexion was a bit off, and his loose-fitting skin was thin and clammy. His semen had a muddy taste, like the pond he came from, and his little apparatus was disappointing. But his tongue was amazing. It could reach the deepest recesses, triggering sensations she'd never known before. His crown was not worn like a hat. It grew out of his head like horns and sometimes got in the way. But his tongue was long enough for detours and tickled other parts on the path in. It gave him not so much a lisp as a consonantal slurp, making gibberish out of his sweet nothings. But talking was never the main thing between them. She had discovered when he was still an amphibian and they were just getting into the kissing game, that licking him would give her a stunning, hallucinogenic high. And that was still true of metamorphosis later. But though she could get a buzz by licking the frog anywhere, she had to go looking for it on the prince, mostly in the nether parts. He wasn't the cleanest of princes, but the trip was worth it. She was transported to another realm, a kind of fairy kingdom where she could have anything she desired. Wealth, beauty, a spectacular wardrobe, a winning bridge hand, cream-filled chocolates with zero calories, and love whenever she wanted it, which was most of the time. 
even when she was doing other things, like presiding over a royal banquet or reviewing the palace guard. Just wham, bam, grand slam. Glorious. It all tended to vanish when the high wore off, but another lick and she was back again. Her suburban life began to pale by comparison, but whenever she asked the prince to transport her to his real kingdom, he always took her back to the pond where she'd found him. He was very happy there. He'd crawl into the mud, digging in until only his protruding eyes peered out. His crown seemed to float on the surface. At home, his eyes were sometimes wide awake and popping. At other times, especially when he was eating, they sank away and almost disappeared. But at the pond, he was always goggle-eyed. Now and then he would unfurl his tongue and burp, and she would get into the mud with him. It wasn't the same as the hallucinatory kingdom, but it was still very nice. His frequent burping blighted his regal dignity somewhat, but at the same time, it was the most lovable thing about him, and when he burped, he always gazed at her in an especially affectionate way. When he was still a frog, he had taken his skin off from time to time to eat it. Fortunately, the prince did not do that, though his long tongue did snap up anything that dripped or flaked off, which sometimes spoiled her appetite. About once a month, he removed his clothes and crawled up on her back and locked his skinny legs around her for several days, his long toes fondling her bosom, his padded thumbs stuck to her armpits like Velcro. She couldn't shake him off, but had to wait until whatever it was that he was doing was done. It was probably obscene, though thankfully she couldn't see it. Certainly she had to launder her skirts and blouses afterward. It was difficult with the prince pasted to her back, even to do her shopping or get her hair done, and she had to sit sideways on chairs and on the toilet. But the worst thing about these times was that she lost access to her high. If only she had a tongue like his. As soon as he dismounted, and before he could put his royal pantaloons on, she'd get her nose right down there, drug fiend that she was, and lick her way back to the fairy kingdom. And on one such day, or night, one can never be sure in that place, when she was pinned, spread-eagled, by croquet wickets on the sunny, moonlit, palace lawn for the pleasure of all, her euphoric self included, goodness, she was popping like his eyes did. He asked her in his slurping way if she was happy where she was. Oh, yes, totally, she exclaimed breathlessly. So he left her there and, if she understood him correctly, went back to the pond to crawl into the mud. Well, she missed him, just as she missed her friends at the bridge club and, truth be told, her ex as well but she was having too much wild, royal fun to think about it. Or to think about anything, really. Highs being like that. It was fantastic and seemingly unending. But alas, nothing lasts forever, least of all ecstasy. And so one day there she was at home again, 
lying like a deflated airbag on her filthy kitchen floor. She mopped the floor, bagged up the mess in the refrigerator, opened all the windows, and hurried back to the pond, looking for the prince. She chased burps all day and all night, but he was nowhere to be found. The weather had changed. Perhaps he was hibernating. For a lonely year, she kept up the search, at first somewhat desperately, kissing and licking any frog she managed to catch, but eventually she resigned herself to the futility of her quest and sorrowfully abandoned it. She recalled then the prince's own sorrow and disappointment. He'd thought this would be more fun, he'd confessed to her, once in the mud. Of course, she'd been hurt by that and had pretended not to hear him, but she understood now, as she should have understood then, that he had been not an enchanted prince turned into a frog, but a frog turned into a prince, and all he'd wanted was to be a frog again. In the end, she got in touch with her ex and told him that she had been hooked on a weird drug, but it kicked it now, and if he'd like to come back, she'd welcome him. He was also lonely, smoking and drinking too much, his own affairs having come to nothing. And so gratefully, he returned. And they found a certain contentment, living more or less happily ever after, which is what now is while one's in it. That was Gabe Hudson reading The Frog Prince by Robert Coover. The story was published in The New Yorker in January of 2014. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. Gabe, this story is obviously a subversion of a standard fairy tale in which the handsome prince is turned into an ugly frog and then a beautiful princess kisses him and turns him back into a prince. And the moral or the lesson being find a way to make yourself loved for what's inside or don't judge by appearances. You know, there are a lot of lessons you can draw from the fairy tale. But what lesson do you think we should draw from Coover's version? I think, uh, for instance, there are different ways of looking at our existence, and there's something sort of uh, hubristic about humans thinking that they are the best form of existence on the planet, and that uh, it might actually be preferable to be a frog or to be any animal or to be any entity. And 
that it's just interesting to look at life uh, from the vantage point of others, which are discounted. Right. I mean, this this character turns out not to be a prince turned into a frog turned into a prince, but a frog turned into a prince who wants to go back to being a frog, who really liked it in the mud. Yes, (laughs) yes. Um, How does that change this narrative? It puts... The hu- it puts human beings uh, lower on the ca- on the sort of caste system of b- desirability. Uh, this story suggests that maybe um, one that we are not the best uh, that evolution has been able to produce, um, and that uh, being a frog might be preferable. It, you know, it's funny. This is the second podcast about a human being in love with a frog that I've taped in the last year. <laughs> wow. uh, um, we had uh, Richard Powers read a story by Stephen Milhauser okay. called The Visit, which in which a man falls in love with a frog who stays a frog. Yeah. You know, she's, she, uh, she's his frog wife. And um, Powers, you know, was, was talking about how we just don't see the natural world and we don't see the possibilities within it. And it seems... Pr- fairly fair to say that the woman in this story doesn't understand yeah. <laughs> the possibilities out there. Um, do you think that what she's feeling for this character, the Frog Prince, is love? I wouldn't be the best judge of that. Uh, love being kind of hard to define anyway, so far be it for me to... Uh, Define it for this individual here in the story. Mm-hmm. Well, when she um, obviously the the main pleasure she seems to get from this prince is that when she she licks him, she's uh, she gets a hallucination or she she gets high and she's transported to the fairy kingdom she would want to be in, which in which she can have any pleasure she wants, um, and that seems to have almost nothing to do with the actual prince. That's right, except for that he's providing the uh, lickable surface. So, I mean, he seems actually super key. <laughs> the to, means of getting there. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. He's the portal. He's the portal, but he's not actually there. Um, but do you think do you think of this story as, you know, she actually at the end calls it a weird drug she was hooked on. Do you think of this as an allegory for, or a metaphor for drug addiction? That's what I like about Bob's work is uh, it tends to cast uh, its tentacles out in such a way that it rubs up against those possibilities, which I think is what makes it um, so gratifying to read. Uh, So I actually wondered if – because I know maybe perhaps for the previous generations the notion of the suburban wife, uh, mother's little helper, you know, I felt like there was a sort of – reference there to mm-hmm. that on the part of Coover. Mm-hmm. I know when, it, when I asked him at the time, or I, at the time I said he, he was reimagining fairy tales, and he said, no, actually he's reimagining ordinary life and flipped it around. So Bob is, <laughs> I mean, interesting Coover to is, think of that yeah. way. No, I love his responses. Uh, I saw an interview once. Um, they asked him, what do you think about all these technological advances? Like, we can do this, we can do this. And he said, ah, just, 
you know, we fiction writers have been, you know, imagining this for 500 years. He always has, like, great responses in mm-hmm. interesting ways. Mm-hmm. I don't always trust it completely, but um, if it helps him do the work that we get to love, then please let him talk. Do you think writers in general don't always know what, what it is that they're I don't think they doing. know. How could <laughs> or they? Or the effect that, that their work has. I mean, they may have glimmers, but it, I really don't think – I mean, I don't think anybody knows what they're doing <laughs> at all, any human being. Um, and certainly writers, uh, because those are the people that kind of ran away from life and were like, I need to be in a room and work this out on the page. So, um, so yeah, I really don't – can't trust a writer. So we get to this point where um – our woman's up and she's spread eagled on the croquet course. And the the prince asks her, do you like it here? And then he leaves. Um, why does he leave? I think he doesn't like it there as much as he likes the mud. <laughs> you know, it's like uh, he's just – he wanted to get back to the place where he felt comfortable. Mm-hmm. So this whole thing for him was a mistake. I mean, he would never know if he hadn't done this. He'd be back in the mud wandering. So I don't think it was like a mistake. It was just uh, uh, an adventure, an investigation. A life lesson. Yes. (laughs) I find the ending of the story quite sad. Um, You know, she's, she's had this experience. She's realized that it was maybe not everything it seemed at the time. Um, but then we get a slightly happy note at the end, which is the ex comes back and uh, he has that wonderful line, you know, that they're, they're living happily ever after or they're living happily ever after is what now is when one's in it, um, which is sort of like that John Lennon line, life is what happens to you when you're busy making other plans. That's right. <laughs> but it makes us stop and think, oh, well, perhaps what I'm doing right now is living happily ever after. Um, so do you think of this as a as a positive story? Um, the short answer is I think this is a positive story because it's a beautiful story and it's so well executed and on the part of the author. So even if it had a negative uh, message, um, I would still see it as positive. Um, I see it not so much positive, negative. It seems true to me. It feels true. It's like the truth about life is, at least for myself, there are many things I've tried and maybe I got a hallucinogenic high off of them and thought this is the greatest and then uh, that went away and then I went back to my normal existence and have to live with that memory of that other thing. It just feels true to me. Mm-hmm. Fairy tales have morals usually, or they have they have lessons, as we talked about. They also often draw on grotesqueness. Do you think that's part of what Coover was playing with here? Sure. Or cruelty sometimes. Fairy tales can be very cruel. Yeah. Again, I I mean I agree with those statements, uh, but I think that they're true. I'm a huge fairy tale fan, so <laughs> like that may come out. I mean, they seem true in their cruelty and uh, true about life. And um, 
I know that he is often drawn towards cruelty or the grotesque or the macabre. Um, he seems to really delight in that. And I'm sure that the potential for that as he was working on this piece, as it exists in the original version, um, was, you know, inspiring to him. So the thing that, um, sort of the buzzword that people would use to describe Coover's work is postmodern or metafiction. Um, do you think that those words apply to what he does? I think probably, as I understand it, these labels, postmodernism, black humor, I think uh, somebody put that uh, label on a bunch of writers. Um, I think that was just a kind of catch-all. And I think the writers that are really great from that era uh, transcend those labels. I think that Robert Coover is one of them. Um, and I think anybody who got caught up in that net and hasn't been able to escape, it's probably more about the lack of um, merit in their work. Mm -hmm. Well, it, it's obvious that he breaks rules. He breaks rules of traditional traditional narrative writing. Though if you ask him, he says he's, he's a realist at heart, and, and of course there was a frog, and um, none of this is meant to be metaphorical in that sense. Right, and I think he might suggest it's in this great position where he was my teacher for so long and now I just get to put words in his mouth. He's not here to correct <laughs> me. Um, I think he might suggest that if you go back to the our earlier literature that what we perceive as breaking rules was actually the norm. And so for him, it's a return to form um, to uh, myths and Although I read recently that he said that folk tales were uh, – that they were subversive but that a lot of the other myths that are sort of top down and trickle down were not. Um, but that's the impression I had is a kind of joy and love of the entire history of narrative and um, an engagement with that. Well, this story is is just under 1,200 words and that's a length that – that uh, Coover often writes at. I mean, he also writes 900-page novels. But um, what do you think he finds appealing in this kind of compactness? Well, I think uh, the velocity and the comedy, um, the ability to take a sort of telescopic view of a life or an event and to sum it up into a sort of condensed fashion. Um, he's awfully good at that. I see him doing it again and again. Um, and so I think that that must be very appealing to him. Um, I can only imagine that this stuff comes to him relatively quickly. Uh, and so he gets caught up in it. In fact, it's like he's licking the frog. <laughs> you know, he's getting high as he's, like, putting this together is what I would guess. It's all a hallucination. Yes. <laughs> In the fairy kingdom. Um, your new novel features a, an aristocratic teenage dragon who has um, some very human characteristics. Do you think that maybe that's part of what draws you to this this sad frog prince? 
I think definitely, in fact, I have to say the dragon has like a gigantic heart. His name is Gorg. And that was taken from the original version of the Frog Prince. I think it says uh, the Frog Prince and good Heinrich. And at the end of that tale, Heinrich, the prince's, uh, I don't know, servant or like coach driver shows up and these bands on his heart break open. And because he's so happy again um, mm-hmm. to be reunited. And um, I must confess that I sort of heisted that <laughs> from the frog prince and put that in my dragon. So this is a fairy tale that, that has meant something to you. Yes, or just fairy tales in general are, um, I really adore them and just find them hugely inspiring. Well, thank you, Gabe. Thank you so much, Deborah. Robert Coover is the author of more than 20 books of fiction, including the novels The Origin of the Brunists, The Brunist Day of Wrath, and most recently, Huck Out West, which was published in January. Gabe Hudson's new novel, Gork the Teenage Dragon, comes out this month. His story, Dear Mr. President, appeared in the 2001 debut fiction issue of The New Yorker. You can download more than 120 previous episodes of The New Yorker Fiction Podcast in the iTunes store, including one in which Joshua Ferris reads a story by Robert Coover. You can download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com. On the Writer's Voice podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazines read by their authors. You can find The Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us on iTunes. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.